Well, let's now open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, and once you have it, let's stand together. The goal this morning was to have a somewhat shortened service. We'll see how that goes. From this point on, I guess the ball's in in my hands, and we'll see if I can keep it short or not. Let's stand together. Isaiah chapter 9, well-known, well-known couple of verses, especially this time of year. We're going to be looking starting in verse 6, as you probably guessed. Hear now the word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The seal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you and praise you for your living supernatural. Humble ourselves before you. We submit ourselves before you. Passage to us, and what we often do with familiar passages, especially Christmas passages that we hear all the time, and we even hear them out in the secular world sometimes at this time of year, is we get so used to hearing them that we don't really stop to consider the magnitude of what's actually being said in them. They just kind of blow right past us. And these two verses that we read this morning are, are filled with amazing glorious truths, in fact, too much for us to tackle all in one morning. And so we're really going to focus in this morning as, as we are coming through the Christmas season, and, and today is, uh, I guess, the eighth day of Christmas, so we're, it's okay to keep celebrating. We've got a few more days yet to get the 12 days of Christmas in. It's okay to still be festive. But as we are in this Christmas season, but also coming into a new year, Uh, it's appropriate for us to stop and consider the astounding claims that are made here of just who Jesus is, just what it is that he is doing. So we're going to focus on this one phrase in verse 6 primarily, and the government shall be on his shoulder. What exactly does that mean? Is that something that's already happened? Why does it matter for us that the government will be on his shoulder? This statement, the first question, of course, is who's he? The government will be on his shoulders. Well, it's this, this child Isaiah tells us about. For unto us a child is born. 
To us a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulder. This child, this son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah says his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I I heard just this week in, in the most absurd nonsense you could possibly imagine, a very famous and popular preacher who who preached this passage this last week and then applied it to himself and believers in his word of faith, heretical preaching. I'm the wonderful counselor. Because God lives in us. We're little gods and, and we're the mighty God and the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace and the crowds cheering and raving. Providentially, I can't even think of the guy's name. I would be happy to tell you and call him a heretic. I just can't remember his name right now. Super well-known. My mother-in-law loves him, if that means anything to you. Lord willing, she doesn't watch this sermon. (laughs) We're off to a great start, everyone. We're not going to be doing that this morning, because this is not what this means. This is not about us. This is about Jesus. And Jesus alone, these titles mean this child that Isaiah is prophesying will come, will be both God and King. That's who this child is. And what should we expect of this child who will be both God and King? Isaiah says the government will be on his shoulder. What does that mean? This is a great encouragement for us in the world in which we live. There's great hope in this statement. What's the government that Isaiah is talking about? Well, when the Bible talks about government, it has a lot more to do with monarchy than it does democracy. It has to do with kingship. Isaiah prophesies this child will come and sovereign authority is going to rest on the shoulders of this child. Now, our government, our, our, our democracy is much different than this. Our, we, our government is intended to be set up to keep any one person from having too much power. Because of sin, we can't trust anyone with that kind of power. By the people, for the people. And that's the theory, at least. Uh, some of us feel like it doesn't always play out that way. And of course, the reason for this is, is sin. Separation of powers is necessary because of sin. It's that old saying, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. So checks and balances are, are vital for us in our governmental system. It should be clear to us at this point, as we now enter 2023, that we shouldn't put our hope in our government. I think they've done everything they can do to make that clear to us. There's no governmental defense against the wickedness of our hearts, not even democracy. If one person would vote sinfully, then a bunch of sinners will still vote and choose sinfully. And so there's no defense for us against our own sin. Now, it's it's still the best system that the world has come up with in terms of how people can, can live together peaceably, but don't put your hope in it. The government will fail you over and over and over again. There is no perfect system of checks and balances except one, 
And the one is what Isaiah is talking about here. It's the lordship of Jesus Christ. There is one kingdom that will last forever. Just one. All other earthly kingdoms rise and they fall. One kingdom will stand forever. And so when, when Isaiah refers to the government being on his shoulder, he's, he's talking about Christ's complete and total sovereign rule over all things. He's not talking about the American concept of government that is of the people, by the people. We, we need to be careful not to read that into this statement that he makes. It is the supreme rule of Jesus Christ over all things. Him and him alone. Our wishes, our desires, our plans, and our ideas do not factor into this. It is the rule, the sovereign rule of Christ alone. So he says the government will be on his shoulders. If, if a military general came and stood before us this morning, how would we know his rank? How would we know who he was? How would we know that this is a military general? Well, we would look, we'd look at his shoulders. We'd look at his uniform. We'd count the stars. And we'd know where he ranked. More than that, when we, when we think about the carrying of responsibility and the carrying of weight, it's our shoulders that carry the most weight. If you had to, to carry a 50-pound bag of concrete out of here this morning, you would hoist it up onto your shoulders. You probably wouldn't hold it like this in front of you, or your back would tell you later that you had made a mistake. At least if you have a back like mine, it would. And, and so kings and, and soldiers wear symbols of their authority on their shoulders. And Isaiah says the government will be on Christ's shoulders, symbolically pointing to his kingly rule over all things. It, it rests there. The government rests there. The authority rests there like stars on the shoulders of a general. Well, there's something more in this statement that I, Isaiah makes, that the government will be on his shoulder, and that is this. He alone has the unique ability to carry it. He alone has the unique ability to wield this sovereign authority. That, that old truism, absolute power corrupts absolutely, is not always true. There's one case where it's not true. Jesus is not fallen. Jesus is not a sinner. There's no fear of him becoming a tyrant. When, when, we, when we look at these statements in Scripture of the absolute rule and authority of Jesus Christ, of Him being the one exercising sovereign authority over all things, calling all the shots, ruling over all of His creation, we don't have to tremble in fear that He's going to do wrong by us, or that He's going to do wrong by that creation, or that the power is going to go to His head. He's the wonderful counselor. His wisdom is higher than our wisdom. We cling to our notions of wanting to call the shots and wanting to be in charge and wanting to make all the decisions and have all our choices be the number one primary thing in all the world. But the truth is his wisdom is far higher than ours. We should want the one with the wisdom to be making the choices and the decisions. He's able to make wise plans in all of history. And in that particular part of history, we're most concerned about our own lives. He's the mighty God. He's powerful to do all that he wants to do. Our God is in the heavens, the Psalms say, and he does all that he pleases. He's the everlasting Father. 
He's not just this, this sovereign, all-powerful despot out there somewhere in the world. He is our Father, the everlasting Father, our loving guide, protecting us, disciplining us as his beloved children. He's the Prince of Peace. It's the Lord Jesus who, who makes peace between a just, holy God and rebellious sinners, rebels, enemies. He's the one, as we've seen in the, the early chapters of the book of Romans, this hostility that existed between us and God. Not only were we at war with him, he was at war with us. And the Lord Jesus Christ steps in between that and makes peace. He's the one who will eventually make peace with not just us and God, but everything. And notice Isaiah refers to Christ's government in the future tense. The government shall be on his shoulders. When Isaiah wrote these words, it hadn't happened yet. But the question we have to look at is, is that still the case? It hadn't happened yet when Isaiah wrote this, but is it still in the future? How should we think about the kingdom of God? What does the New Testament say about the kingdom of God? Is it still in the future or has it already come? Some of you are saying it's already come and some of you are saying it's still in the future. And in one sense, both statements are true. There is, a, there is an already but not fully component to the kingdom of God. The kingdom has come, but certainly I woke up with a headache this morning, which means the kingdom hasn't come fully, right? More often the Bible talks about it like this. There are many examples of this. We'll use one for time's sake. Ephesians chapter 1 Starting in verse 16, Paul says this, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? according to the working of his great might that he, worked in, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet, gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here Paul talks in the past tense. He put all things under Christ's feet. It's happened. We're not still waiting for all things to be subjected to the lordship of Christ. They have been put under his feet. Jesus Christ is in control, that means. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning right now. He put all things under his feet. All things means nothing is excluded. There's nothing that isn't under his feet. There's nothing that isn't under his sovereign rule. As Abraham Kuyper said, there's not one square inch in the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. That's what it means for all things to be put under his feet. It means everything. Everything is under his feet, under his sovereign rule. He is king over all. Think about what that means. 
We sing that truth at Christmas time. We say that truth regularly. We don't always pause to think of the magnitude of exactly what that means. Jesus Christ is an authority over all things right now. He put all things under his feet. Think about what's wrapped up in that word all. It's mind-boggling if we really start to think about what it means. It means somewhere right now in Africa, there is a gazelle. And there's a lion that hasn't eaten in a couple days, and he's got his eyes on that gazelle. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ who decides whether that gazelle lives or whether that lion eats. Think of, that's one of a billion things that we can't even comprehend that's going on in the world that he is lord over, that he is ruling over, that he is sovereign over. He's even sovereign over church pipes bursting so that you can't gather for corporate worship on Christmas Sunday. And Jason's sitting sadly in his living room on Christmas morning. Actually, it didn't. We went to a different church because it's the Lord's Day. It's just, think of the trillions of things going on in this exact moment that Jesus Christ is Lord over. It's all been placed under his feet. Jesus has been seated on the throne now, right now, at the right hand of glory. He, he, the, the Father is actively putting his enemies under his feet. It's completely done. He rules in complete and total authority. Hebrews 10 verse 12 says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. One of the most frequently quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament comes from Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Apostle Peter reveals to us this is a divine conversation that took place between the Father and the Son when the Son ascended into heaven after his death and resurrection. And this conversation, Peter says, is what took place. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is Christ right now, seated, enthroned, ruling, reigning, his enemies being put underneath his feet. The government is right now on his shoulder. Isaiah says it like this in our passage, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When Isaiah wrote these words, when God breathed them out through the prophet Isaiah, God had more in mind than than a nice, feel-good quote we could write on a Christmas card. God had more in mind than that. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. That is the increase of his, the exercise of his sovereign rule. Jesus Christ rules and reigns over all things. And Isaiah is painting this picture. It's the same one the author of Hebrews paints. It's the same one that we see in Psalm 110 of Christ enthroned and progressively extending the exercise of his sovereign authority throughout all of creation. 
Isaiah wrote these words intending to tell us something about the nature of the kingdom, or at least it was in the mind of God. When this child comes, the kingdom of God comes with him. So the birth of Jesus is a turning point that fundamentally changes everything. That's why we still measure time by this event. Now, the world has tried to, to, uh, to fool us into thinking that's not what's going on, and they call it before the common era and common era. But everyone knows exactly what it is. Time is measured in the year of our Lord. This is the most monumental, significant, history-shattering event. After this event, history is headed in a new direction. But, but in the accomplished mission of Jesus, it, it, so not just in his birth, but in his sinless life, in his substitutionary death on the cross, in his victory over sin and death and hell, in his glorious resurrection, God's kingdom has entered into human history in a new way. And for us to really understand the kingdom of God as it, as it works in, in our lives, we need to understand that Jesus accomplished his earthly mission. He wasn't just born. He wasn't just a good example for us. It wasn't just a tragic story of a man who, who was kind to people and got murdered for it. He accomplished his earthly mission. And so the message of Christmas, this one that, that Isaiah gives, is not a delusional message. It's not wishful thinking. In the birth of Christ and in the life of earthly ministry of Christ, God is not attempting something. God is doing something. There's a big difference between those two things. There's a big difference between Jesus coming to earth and living and dying and rising again and God hoping that might accomplish something good in the world and in your life and God actually accomplishing something good in the world and in your life. And the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is an accomplishment on God's part. It is not an attempt on God's part. The region Jesus came into the world was not, it was to save the world. It was not to attempt to save the world. It was to save the world. It was to save his own. It was to accomplish all of these things that Isaiah came. He comes, as we sang this morning, to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Not to try. Not to hope. He certainly didn't say, I've done my part. The rest is on you and I hope you choose right. Who needs a sovereign God who would do things like that? Not, not me. It was an accomplishment. He accomplished his mission. So the kingdom of God is nothing less than the rule and realm of the Lord Jesus Christ manifested in history according to his good will and pleasure. And, and that kingdom expands and extends as Christ rules. Jesus Christ is king. His authority is above all others, but it also penetrates into every realm, into every sphere of life. There's nothing outside of that. There's nothing where we take, well, here's the reign of Christ, and here's this other thing, and we try to keep them as separate as we can. No, it doesn't work like that. There's not one square inch in this universe over which Christ doesn't claim complete and total 
authority. There is no neutrality in this entire universe. Jesus Christ really is the Lord of all things. He really is the Lord of heaven and earth. There's nothing out there in the universe, no other planets, no, no, no angelic beings over which Christ does not have complete and total dominion and authority. And there is nothing on this earth, no earthly government, no school system, no tribe, no nation, no tongue, over which Christ does not have complete and total dominion. It's all His. He is the Lord of all, of all of heaven and earth. Paul says it like this in Philippians 2, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted Him, bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul says, begins that verse 9 with, therefore. The therefore is pointing to what Paul said that came before that, that we didn't read. In light of Christ's humiliation, in light of the second person of the, the divine triune Godhead taking on humanity, humbling himself, emptying himself, in light of that, In light of his incarnation, God becoming man. In light of his sinless life, tempted in all ways just as we are, yet without sin. In in light of his shameful death on the cross, naked, mocked, beaten, scorned. More than that, our sins placed upon him. Our condemnation placed upon him. The wrath of God that that was stored up for us poured out upon him. In light of all of that, God has highly exalted him. There's no greater humbling that has ever taken place than that of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there will never be a greater exaltation than his. And it's it's this exaltation of Christ that's the central proclamation of the New Testament church. This is the most common expression of the early church. The most common confession is this, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And wrapped up in that statement is so much. It's actually a direct confrontation to a political statement of the day. Caesar is Lord. Christians said, no. He's come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He is the Lord of all. Jesus is Lord. All, all of our blessings, all of our life flow down from the exaltation of Christ. This is where all of our hope is found. This is where all of our freedom is found. All of our joy is found. We've been made citizens of his kingdom. Not just citizens, as as we've seen as we've gone through the book of Romans, we've been made sons and daughters of the king, inheriting children of this king and his kingdom. And Jesus, our, our king, is enthroned right now in heaven. He's going to return from heaven to establish the new heavens and the new earth. And in the meantime, he rules right now. He rules right now over over everything from his throne. 
And that means Christ is the rightful ruler over all the earth. We are living right now in the colonies of heaven. We have, in a sense, dual citizenship. We're not to live our lives as if, as if we're, we're just citizens of heaven, ultimately the new heavens and the new earth, and so we don't even care about what's going on with this sinking ship we call earth. No, we're citizens here. We're to seek the good of the city to which God has called us. We are to, to seek the good of this world. We are to live as good citizens, but ultimately we do so knowing that our ultimate citizenship is in the new heavens and the new earth. That, that's that's our, our home, and that should change how we think about this world. To know that that is our home. The, the blessed hope at the end of history is something that's in the works right now. That should encourage us. That should strengthen us. The, the Christian message is not Jesus will win. The Christian message is Jesus has won. Do, do you see... The hope there, especially when we look at a world that, that feels like it has spun completely out of control. And yet our message is Jesus has won. Jesus rules. Jesus reigns. God has accomplished his good purposes and he will accomplish his good purposes. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He has made unshakable promises to us as his people for his presence in our lives right now, but even greater promises of assurance of our citizenship, which is sealed in Christ for all of eternity with him. What does it mean for us? How should we live then as as citizens of Christ's kingdom? How should we live as those who are under his rule? First is, we should be about the work of the kingdom. That's who we are. We've not been saved by good works, but we've been saved unto good works. We ought to put our hand to the plow. We're not called to, as Christians, we've been, we've been converted and we've been saved and we've been filled with the Holy Spirit. God didn't do all that so that we'd sit around and dream that we might have a secret rapture that zaps us out of our shoes one day and we can just disappear. That is not why you were saved. We weren't called to hide in our churches and hope that God just takes us out of here. We're called to do the work of the kingdom. We're called to carry out the great commission. His kingdom expands. As, as it is expanding and Christ's enemies are being put under his feet, how's God doing that? What's the means by which God is doing that? Expanding the kingdom, filling the earth. But how is God filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of, the, of God as the waters cover the sea? How is he doing it? Not through human wisdom. Not through military conquest. Not through political strategy. Not by the snap of his fingers. It is through obedient service to Christ while proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. It's ordinary men and women living as faithful citizens of this time and place into which God has providentially placed us who yet live in the knowledge that we are ultimately citizens of God's 
kingdom, who have been entrusted with the gospel of God's kingdom as heralds of that gospel to proclaim it to the world. This gospel that Romans 1.16 says is the power of God for salvation. This is how Christ's enemies are being put under his feet. This is how the gospel is expanding. This is how the earth is being filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The harvest is plentiful, and we Christians are called to keep our hand to the plow. Not to fold our hands and rest, not to to kick back and put our feet up. Second is this, we should be filled with hope. We of all people should be the most joyful, hope-filled people. The proclamation of Christ as rightful king and ruler and authority and dominion over all things is not issued with an angry scowl. It is a joyous proclamation. It is a hope-filled, glorious truth. Jesus Christ is Lord of both heaven and earth. And here's what that means. The great commission to which have, Christian, you have been commissioned It's not wishful thinking. And it's not going to fail. As we look at the world around us, we go, things are going from bad to worse. And I can't imagine how terrible it's going to be when my kids get older. And and, uh, we'll... I can crush therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the earth. Jesus did not commission you by saying, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. That's not your commission. Your commission is this. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That word therefore is crucial and it points us back to the basis for this whole thing. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Because this is true. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Now I send you. That's why. And that's how we know the Great Commission will succeed. This isn't a fool's errand we've been sent on. This isn't, this isn't a, a failing mission. It's not a suicide mission. The Great Commission has a theme, and it's not do good and don't do bad. The Great Commission's theme is this, the sovereign Christ. It is a glorious declaration of his sovereignty. It means we don't have to, because all authority has been given to him, and he sends us out with his message of his kingdom, we don't have to be so savvy as to figure out, i got to figure out the slickest way to present this so people will buy it. No, we don't have to do that. We shouldn't do that. We can give up gimmicks. We can give up all the, the slick antics. We can give up looking at the world and trying to be a bad imitation of them as best we can. We've just been called to herald this truth. 
Proclaim this gospel. That is the power of God for salvation. Earlier in in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2, Isaiah says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Christ has come. Christ is the king. This glorious light of his rule now covers the world. Those who walk in darkness do so in a world that's filled with light. Those who choose to walk in darkness. And and when the sun is up, when when the sun is blazing, it's possible to stay out of the sunlight, but you've got to work at it. You've got to hide in the basement. You've got to cover the windows. And so the, the church's call is not this. You're, you're in darkness. The world, world is filled with such great darkness, but I'm sending you out. I'm sending you out with a little flashlight, and I just want you to shine that flashlight wherever you can. That's not the message. That's not the call. The call is this. Pull back the curtains. The sun is blazing The light cannot be missed. Open the curtain. That's it. That's our job. We just proclaim the truth. That's all we're called to do. Why do we need to hear that? We need to hear that because the world around us is in chaos, it looks like to us. To our human eyes and our understanding. We are prone to think that we are in a losing cause. In fact, many Christians in the United States believe that. They think that way. We are in a losing cause in this earth, but thankfully we'll get zapped out one day. We're prone to to think that way. And so the thinking is the church should retreat. We should just pull back. Don't engage. They've gone too far. Things have gotten too far. I've heard people say before, you don't rearrange the furniture on the Titanic. There's no point. But friends, Jesus Christ has come. Jesus Christ has come. What's more, he's risen from the dead. He's he's made us citizens of his eternal kingdom. He has given to us his Holy Spirit. The third person of the triune Godhead dwells within you. Now, there's not a one of us who can grasp the magnitude of that, of that truth. We are called to work then, not in the expectation of defeat, but in the confidence of victory. Victory that has already been won. Satan's defeat occurred 2,000 years ago. We're not still hoping it happens. It happened. His power has been broken. His final doom is certain. This is not a health and wealth message. A name it and claim it message. You'll just be wealthy and all will go well with you. We abominate that message. It is uh, a damnable heresy. That is not what we're saying. This doesn't mean you won't experience pain in this life, suffering in this life, even poverty or death in this life. We are still awaiting the coming consummation of the kingdom of God. We still await that. Like I said, I woke up with a headache this morning, and that reminds me we are still awaiting the consummation of the kingdom of God. When Jesus Christ physically returns on that last day, when he establishes the new heavens and the new earth, and we will be with him forever, when the the last enemy death is finally defeated, and we, the church, are gloriously raised anew with Christ, our sin finally put to death. 
We still await that. We eagerly await that. We eagerly await the consummation of the kingdom of God. But in Christ, the kingdom of God really has arrived. It really has. The kingdom of, the king has come. King Jesus sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father, and he reigns now till all of his enemies are put under his feet, culminating in that last great enemy, death, finally being put under his feet. What's more, the king's spirit is now living in us. The king's righteousness is ours already by faith. The king's holiness is already being produced in us by his spirit. The king's joy and the king's peace have already been given to us. The king's victory over Satan is already ours. The king's gifts, the gifts of his spirit are are now available to us to carry out this commission to which we have been called. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. The kingdom of God entering into human history. This is what should fill us with hope as we step into this new year. A year that for many of us feels like the scariest year yet. We have hope. We of all people should be filled with joy. Filled with hope. Filled with courage. Filled with boldness. Filled with passion to proclaim the gospel of this kingdom of which God has graciously made us members. Filled with resolution to keep our hands to the plow. I'll let our year ring out with that glorious proclamation of joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let's pray. Almighty God, we rejoice in your glorious gospel. We rejoice in your great salvation. We rejoice in the finished work of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice in his reign and glory. We rejoice in his lordship and rule over all things. We rejoice in, in his choosing of us to be his own, in his saving of us, in his keeping of us. We rejoice in the gift of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that none of us can comprehend the magnitude of what that means, but this Spirit who is our assurance of salvation, who transforms our mind, who softens our heart, who guides and directs our steps, who empowers us. Lord, countless, countless things. Many you've revealed to us and so many more of which we aren't even aware that you have given to us by your spirit. We rejoice in your great salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be joyful, hopeful, steadfast, faithful servants for every day of our lives on this earth. Lord, faithful citizens of your kingdom, and that that would cause us to be faithful citizens of, of this earth as well. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be, bear much fruit for your kingdom's sake and for your glory. We pray, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, the author of our faith and the finisher of our faith. 
We pray, Lord, that our lives would bring glory to him. In Jesus' name, amen.